Uh, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Uh, welcome. Uh, as you know, today, as some of you may be relieved, is the final message in what has been a four-week topical series on critical theory and critical race theory. Here we get a little bit practical and talk about how to engage uh, this unbiblical uh, ideology and worldview. So that's where we're going today. Uh, where are we going next? That's the big question. Uh, well, next week we're heading to the green pastures of Psalm 23. Uh, Dr. David Hogg, as uh, a professor at Phoenix Seminary, uh, will be preaching on Psalm 23, uh, professor of church history. Um, and so we get the, the great joy and privilege of having him bring God's word to us this coming Sunday. And then after that, we're going to start the, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So that's where we're going in terms of our, the preaching ministry of our church. Before we dive in, let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that in difficult and trying times, you are our rock and refuge. We confess that your steadfast love and faithfulness are sufficient to meet even the hardest challenges of life. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us, Father. You are our hope. Father, we pray that you would indeed be our hope in practice, that we wouldn't be leaning on worldly helps, on our finances, on our network, on our strengths and gifting, but we would be leaning always on you. Father, we pray that you would bless the message this morning and uh, use it, Lord, to equip us to live faithfully in this world. Help us to love those who may not love us. Help us to respond with wisdom and gentleness to the challenges that we face for the glory of your name and the good of our neighbors. Uh, Father, we pray that the messages that were communicated over the last few weeks, including today's message, would produce good fruit in the lives of your people, that you'd be honored. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned already, the last three weeks, we've looked at critical theory, uh, what its central claims are, and how these ideas interlock the inner logic of critical theory. If you haven't had a chance to listen to those messages, I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, the, the messages interlock and look at theory from a variety of different angles, and so that should be helpful. Uh, to sum up last week's message, we talked about critical race theory and three core tenets of critical race theory. The first one was racism is everywhere. It's embedded in all aspects of society. Uh, it's even there in non-obvious ways, and we might challenge that and say perhaps it's not that there is non-obvious racism, perhaps that there isn't racism. Um, that might be a pushback. But a central plank of critical race theory is that racism is systemic, it's everywhere. Second principle of critical race theory that we looked at last time was the idea that race and other social categories you might belong to, like your gender and sexual orientation, these things define you at a fundamental level. They define your identity. You are not fundamentally human. You are black or white or a man or a woman or whatever. Uh, gay, straight, and so on. Uh, and this is in contrast to Scripture, which acknowledges differences. God has established differences among human beings. Those differences are good. Uh, but we are more fundamentally alike than different, according to Scripture. We are made in the image of God. Uh, we have the same nature. And what we, have, what we share is more important than what separates us. And the third plank is the idea that society is arranged in such a way that people with white skin benefit, and uh, those without white skin are oppressed. And so 
uh, whether you are a kind-hearted and well-intentioned white person, it is nevertheless true that you are automatically racist because of the unequal arrangement of society. And we looked at how that's problematic from a biblical standpoint. So that, in a nutshell, is a critical race theory. There's, of course, much more to be said, and we did say it, so consult those messages. As I noted, uh, today our focus is going to be more practical. Uh, how do we engage with wokeness uh, and people who are woke? And I'll give you nine principles this morning uh, for how to think about that and how to engage. Normally we have three points. Uh, we felt a more robust analysis of these issues was appropriate, hence nine. I hope you're still with me at eighthly. Maybe I'm being unduly optimistic. Uh, first place to begin when we consider the whole question of how to engage with outsiders, we want to start with uh, first principles in Scripture. And the first thing we want to know is as we engage with these ideas and engage uh, with social justice types is we want to speak with gentleness. We want to remember that. Uh, there is a temptation when we are slandered and accused and assaulted to hit back, to give way to resentment and hostility and hatred. Uh, one of C.S. Lewis's characters is described in the following way. He had gone sour inside from long-suffering and hating. And there is a real spiritual temptation that we also will go sour on the inside uh, because of suffering, because of hating, because of resentments. As followers of Jesus, we renounce all of that, and we heed the call of Scripture to respond with a characteristic gentleness, even towards those who may oppose us and oppose us vigorously. 1 Peter 3.15 says, in your, heart, in, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, so you are always ready to share the good news about Jesus when someone asks. Uh, but notice how you are to share it. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's what Christians should be known for uh, when they engage with others. There is a gentleness and respect that comes out when we communicate even dissent from other viewpoints. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There again, you see that emphasis on gentleness. Not harsh, not demeaning, uh, not trampling on people, but gentle. He goes on to write, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice what that part of the verse implies. It, it suggests that God may grant them repentance. He might clear uh, confused thinking. So when we engage with others, we should do so respectfully, but also an expectation that God is big. I can't change anybody's thinking, but God can. And so as we engage, we should engage prayerfully, with a quiet confidence that God is able to take our weak and inadequate efforts and accomplish great things with them. But above all, we engage with gentleness. Uh, this means that we value the person that we're speaking to. We treat them as having dignity because they're made in the image of God. We don't treat them harshly. harshly. We don't treat them with contempt. We don't abuse and insult them. We exhibit patience, uh, and we are reasonable when we engage with them. However, gentleness does not mean certain things. Gentleness does not mean that you never challenge error. Jesus was gentle, but on many occasions, he challenged wrong ways of thinking. The apostles, like the apostle Paul, when he stood before the Athenians, 
uh, Acts chapter 17, he challenged their pagan views of God. There is a place for being gentle and for challenging wrong ways of thinking. This is important to insist upon because sometimes Christians have misguided understandings of what being gentle looks like and, and the, w- without reflecting the place they land is never push back on anything. We just accept it when people say, well, no, there's a place for challenging error. Secondly, gentleness does not mean that we never speak firmly. There is a place for pointed, direct, and firm rebukes of people. Uh, We see that in Jesus' ministry. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. There is a place for firmness and directness in our communication. There's also a place for restrained anger. Gentleness does not mean that you are never angry. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Now, we have to be careful because anger is like fire. It quickly spreads everywhere and destroys uh, far more than we intended, right? Uh, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, according to Scripture. So we want to be very careful, but there are certain things in this world that make God angry and should make us, to a degree, angry. But that does not mean that we ever uh, use that anger to justify mistreating people. So how how do we obtain this gentleness? Uh, this respectful, patient way of dealing with people. Uh, For most of us, I dare say all of us, this doesn't come naturally. The human instinct is to hit back. How do we uh, obtain the gentleness that Scripture calls for? Well, Paul teaches us in Titus 3, 1 through 5, how we obtain this gentleness. He writes to Titus and says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. How do we become like that? Paul goes on. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. First thing he says is, remember who you were. Remember who you were without Jesus Christ, a rebel, dead in your sins, corrupt, unable to please God, separated from him, wretched, wretched, wretched. Remember what you are outside of Jesus Christ. Remember that the truth about you is more horrible than you dared believe. But secondly, remember what God has done. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Uh, We were once enemies of God, running as far away from him as we possibly could. And God, in his goodness, came to us. It was unasked for, unexpected. God, in his goodness, came and wrapped his arms around us and rescued us. If we are no longer wretched and rebellious and miserable, it's because the grace of God has shown up in our lives undeservedly, and it has changed everything. If you want to be gentle, Paul says, we need to understand two gospel truths, that we are far worse than we ever thought and far more loved in Jesus Christ than we could have ever dared hope. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. How how do we become gentle, patient, reasonable people? By looking at the fact that when we were utterly unlovely, God loved us. And through his son Jesus, he brought us to himself. When we internalize that, we will be gentle. 
You might say, well, they, they don't deserve kindness. Well, neither did you. And yet God showed you kindness anyway. So as we engage with those who don't think like us, we need to have a posture of gentleness, of respect. Second thing, though, is we also need to take these ideas seriously. We need to take critical theory seriously. Uh, we spent four weeks talking about it. That should communicate something of how seriously we as a leadership team uh, think these ideas are, and we should take it seriously, uh, not least because this is an ideology that is deeply intolerant. This is an ideology that is not content to live and let live. If you disagree with theory, you're not simply wrong. You are evil. You're part of the problem. You are also one of the oppressors. There's a, a pretty famous incident in 2017, I believe, at Evergreen State College where Brett Weinberg, a professor of biology, was confronted by some of the students on campus uh, to challenge some, some of the problematic stances that he had taken. And the professor, uh, Weinberg or Weinstein, one of those is almost certainly right, uh, the, the, the professor challenged his students and said, what is the evidence for racism on this campus? And the response was that to even ask for evidence of racism is itself racist. To even ask that these charges would be authenticated through evidence was an example of racism. What this illustrates is it's not possible to disagree and, uh, and still be friends. We can't live and let live because if you disagree, you are a racist. You're part of the problem. You're, part of, you're, you're an oppressor that needs to be challenged. This is a deeply intolerant view. Uh, the, the bumper stickers notwithstanding, coexist. Well, coexistence is difficult if you embrace this point of view. Those who disagree with you can't be treated chari charitably. They are fundamentally not just wrong, but also evil, also enemies. We need to take it seriously also because it's deeply entrenched in many prominent sectors of society. In the academic world, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. They took over the humanities, the, the you know, study of literature and, and history and that kind of thing. Increasingly, there are even attempts at inroads into the hard sciences. Uh, we see it in teacher training programs. Uh, many places we see the influence of CRT. In fact, I remember I don't know, 18 years ago, when I took some uh, education classes at the university I attended, uh, we were talking about things like hegemony and false consciousness, and, and some of these ideas that I never thought would, you know, would spew out into the street from university, those ideas were there and, and they were being discussed. And certainly th that is simply more the case at this point. Uh, Douglas Murray, in his book, The Madness of Crowds, describes the influence that these ideas have had in Silicon Valley, the tech sector. He said, as anybody who has spent any time there will know, the political atmosphere in Silicon Valley is several degrees to the left of a liberal arts college, which surprised me because I thought there was nothing to the left of liberal arts colleges. But there is, and it's called Silicon Valley. Social justice activism is assumed correctly to be the default setting for all employees in the major companies, and most of them, including Google, put applicants through tests to weed out anyone with the wrong ideological inclinations. So in the tech world, these ideas are ubiquitous, they're accepted, and there's even screening for ideology. So they've made inroads into some very prominent aspects of society. And finally, it's an aggressive revolutionary ideology. It constantly seeks to push the envelope. In counter wokecraft by a guy named Charles Pincourt with James Lindsay, we are told a key aspect of the woke ethos 
is an obligation to oppose and resist oppression. As a result, in every situation where oppression is identified, woke participants will try to make an advance. This amounts to always, under all circumstances, trying to push the envelope. Uh, those who identify with the woke ideology, social justice warriors, try to remake institutions in their own image. There is always an attempt to find like-minded individuals and to push and to push until the workplace embodies their ideology. So take it seriously. This is a, a threat that we have to confront and think about and challenge biblically. Third, what should we do in response? Well, as you guessed, we should speak and act against it where you can. I say where you can because you need wisdom increasingly. Uh, it can cost you your job if you say the wrong thing to the wrong people. Uh, so exercise wisdom, but speak and act against it where you can. This needs to happen at an institutional level. If you have uh, access to the levers of power where you happen to work or be, uh, think through how to protect your institution from woke inroads. Uh, one resource I'd commend to you is Counter Woke Craft by, again, Charles Pincourt with James Lindsay, which I referenced earlier. The whole book is, is about methods of social justice types and how they can be counteracted. And some, some examples include uh, make sure that you have clear, formal procedures for decision-making in your institution and that you follow them. Uh, social justice activists like to use informality to advance their agenda. Also, be sure that you stay away in the documents that you create as an institution from woke terminology. And the reason for this is that when that terminology is put into a document, uh, some of the key words like critical are given one meaning, and then several months later, that document reappears, and that word critical, for example, is redefined according to woke definitions, and activists will say, see, it's in our documents. We as an institution have agreed to these ideas, and therefore that opens the door. So those of you with some sort of institutional power and authority, uh, be wary about how you can protect your organization from these sorts of ideas. Uh, but what I especially want to emphasize is how we as individual Christians can challenge and speak about these things, and we should challenge. Uh, we are called, as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to bear witness to the truth, to talk about Jesus and his redemption and love. But sometimes speaking about the truth also means challenging falsehood. We see that in Jesus' ministry. We see that also, as I mentioned, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So how can we challenge? Uh, first thing you might do is simply express disagreement to let other people know that there are alternative ways of thinking. Uh, some of these ideas have been so widely accepted that in certain environments, it's almost just assumed that everybody agrees to them. Disagreeing clearly and forcefully allows people to know, actually, this is, there isn't consensus. I, at least... Uh, don't agree. Proverbs 18.17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. CRT has, as it were, stated its case first, uh, but when someone challenges it, it can be fruitful. So at a minimum, just express disagreement. Uh, secondly, ask, compared to what? Compared to what? Again, Douglas Murray. One way to start might be to ask more regularly, compared to what? When people attempt to sum up our societies today as monstrous, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, patriarchies, the question needs to be asked. If this hasn't worked or isn't working, what is the system that has worked and does work? Okay, so this society is racist and oppressive to women and so on. All right, give an example of a society that does it better. This society is vile compared to what? Provide an alternative. 
And if the only thing you can do is complain about how wretched this society is without any clear alternative, well, it's not clear that these ideas are productive and fruitful and worthy of acceptance compared to what? And closely related to this, ask for specifics. As Bradley Levinson observes in his book in favor of critical social theories, he says, it, critical theory, is not so good at specifying the means of liberation. Criticalists are notoriously vague about the specifics of emancipation. In other words, we can't put forward a positive proposal of what society should look like, but we know this one's bad, so let's tear it down. When Levinson tries to identify some specifics, and he makes a, this itemized list of some things he would like to see in society, he identifies these two, among others. He speaks of a society in which we are encouraged, even required, to see each other's full humanity when we interact. That's hardly a blueprint, right? Uh, that, that's vague, that's generic. Another uh, one of the criterion or criteria that he wants to see is a greater transparency of social rules. Again, hopelessly vague. Uh, and that needs to be called out. You, you, there are these accusations that society is oppressive and so on. Uh, give us detailed and specific proposals of alternatives. Where specifically do you see these things? Finally, don't allow claims of victimhood to do away with the need for evidence. Don't allow claims of victimhood to do away with the need for scrutinizing investigation evidence. There is a, there is a rhetorical move that activists will sometimes do. They'll begin speaking by saying, I am a black trans person and I feel. I am a black lesbian woman and I think that. I am a brown Muslim woman, and I feel that. And the idea is you, you, you position yourself as a member of an oppressed victim social group uh, so as to draw sympathy for your position and to make it uncomfortable for people to challenge. In that kind of environment, it can look sort of like, at a minimum, you've got bad manners when you challenge people who have identified themselves as a victim. And the thinking behind this sort of posturing according to theory, is that if you belong to one of these oppressed groups, if you're a black or woman or gay or whatever, um, then you see oppression while people in the dominant classes don't see oppression. And so you are able to talk about oppression and victimization, and those in the dominant classes need to not challenge your narrative, they simply need to listen to it and accept it. But as Christians, we should reject the idea that any social group has the ability to speak and tell us what is true without being challenged by the facts. We need to insist upon evidence. What is the basis for these claims? Facts are more important than feelings and personal testimony. As Murray notes, the victim is not always right or nice and may not be a victim. The, the mere claim to be a victim doesn't automatically make you a victim. Facts are important, and we should act, ask for the facts of the case, for the evidence. Uh, certainly, God judges us based on the truth, and we should do the same. Romans 2, 2. God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Again, Romans 2, 2. God takes into account the facts of the case, fundamentally, not our feelings, and judges us accordingly, and we are to do the same. What are the facts? What is the evidence? 
Number four, show how critical theory doesn't work. Show how critical theory doesn't work. It's important to note that in Scripture, we are told not simply that sin is evil and contrary to God's will, which it is. We are also shown in Scripture the destructive consequences of sin and rebellion. So, for example, Proverbs 5, 8, 8 through 11 doesn't simply say, keep away from the forbidden woman because it's evil. It shows you the consequences of going to another man's wife. Keep, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Your flesh and body are consumed. That's a picture of the destructive consequences of rebelling against God. And often when you speak to woke individuals, uh, we saw that th there's a radical skepticism about the possibility of knowing truth. Uh, so one potentially fruitful way to engage is not, is this true or false, although I think we need to insist on that constantly, but as a, as a complement to that, one fruitful way to engage is to ask, does it work? What are the consequences of, of embracing this ideology? Let me just get practical here very quickly and recommend a three-step approach. Number one, identify what you hold in common, common ground. Uh, so you're speaking to someone and say, hey, can we agree that it, it is ideal for, in society to have all of these different groups we're discussing uh, to live at peace with one another, to live in harmony with one another, to have goodwill towards one another? to be charitable to, toward one another. Do, can we agree that society would be better if that were the case? And hopefully, yes, right? There's common ground. Step two, show how wokeness makes that ideal impossible. Okay, so we want harmony among these different groups, but you're saying that we should define ourselves fundamentally, not in terms of like our shared humanity, but in terms of the things that separate us, like race, skin color, or gender, and, and you're saying that people in these different categories have radically different experiences of the world such that they can't really talk to each other. The outcome is, more, is gonna be that we're gonna separate from each other, we're gonna be suspicious of each other. Theory will inflame division, not make it better. So show how critical theory lacks the resources to bring about this ideal. And then step three, show how Christianity provides a basis for common ground. Uh, point out, for instance, that Christianity teaches that what unites us is more important than what separates us. We're all made in the image of God, and, and what we have in common is more important than these distinctions, and when we recognize that, there is room for dialogue, mutual understanding, and a charitable interpretation of what people say. So show how critical theory doesn't work. Number five, deal with people as individuals, not as representatives of wokeness. Deal, this is important. Deal with individuals not as representatives, uh, I'm sorry, deal with people as individuals, not as representatives of wokeness. This is what theory does, right? It teaches people to look not at the individual and makes, what makes them unique, but to view individuals as faceless members of social classes. That's what theory does, and we don't want to do that. 
When we engage with the woke, we don't want to view them as simply faceless representatives of theory. We want to view them as individuals made in the image of God and understand their unique and distinctive perspective. It's important to do this because not everybody embraces critical theory for the same reasons. Some are drawn to it because they're confused. They see words like justice and oppression, and they go, oh, I'm a, I, I love Jesus. I want to stand up for justice and fight for the oppressed. Okay, that person's just confused, and they need a little bit of an education. Explain to them patiently what's going on and how theory has a very different understanding of justice than Scripture, and clarify the situation. Other people are drawn to critical theory because it gives them a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. Douglas Murray writes, in an era without purpose and in a universe without clear meaning, this call to politicize everything and then fight for it has an undoubted attraction. It fills life with the meaning of a kind. Young people especially are prone to this. Young people want a cause to fight for, right? When you're in college, you, you want something to be able to, to do battle for. You want to give your life to something, and theory provides that. You can engage in activism and, and fight oppression. So what, with this kind of individual, what you want to do is, first of all, show the problems with theory, but second of all, show them how Christianity provides a better story, a better vision of the world, a higher purpose and meaning. The Christians, Christianity is not just true, it's beautiful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Human beings rebelled against the creator and plunged themselves into misery and opened the door to the chaos that we see, but God in love sent his son to redeem a wretched and sinful humanity. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has put things right between sinners and God. Those who trust in him are reconciled to God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be instruments of redemption in the world. The church, as it bears witness to Jesus Christ, becomes God's appointed instrument for, for drawing the nations to himself and bringing all the peoples of the world into one people. And one day, the Son of God will return in glory and put all things right. It's a better story that is a higher meaning to live for. Provide people that story. Show them how that provides the meaning that they are seeking. Now, some people are drawn to it because they want human approval. It's chic. If you want to be in the inner circle today, to, to a degree, you've got to embrace these ideas. And so they're drawn to it, not necessarily because they believe it, but because they don't want to be ostracized. As you know, that, that toothless peasant on the fringes of society. They, they want to be you know, at the center of things. Uh, and with that sort of individual, you, you need to recognize there's a spiritual problem. There's, a, there's the fear of man that's controlling their life rather than the fear of God. They need to die to this lust for human approval and seek to please their creator. And finally, some are genuinely uh, committed to these ideas and need to be reasoned with. The important thing is to consider each person as an individual, consider where they are, and speak to that specific situation. And this brings me naturally to point six, Listen carefully and ask clarifying questions. The temptation when you speak to someone who doesn't think like you, but you know something about their general ideas, is to not listen to them. I know what you woke type thinks, you know, types uh, think, and uh, I've heard it all before, and, and so we don't listen carefully. Proverbs 18.13, though, says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Listen to people. Desire to know what they have to say. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, James 1.19. Don't just think about what you bring to the conversation. Be interested in the point of view of the other person. And one aspect of listening well is asking clarifying questions. 
Like, oh, okay, so what do you mean by systemic racism? Like, what do you mean by systemic? Explain that. When you ask genuine questions designed to help you understand what they're thinking, it, it's often very disarming to the person. Uh, they see that you're interested, and so they become a little bit more self-critical of their own standpoint. You can see this with the parents and teenagers, right? If a teenager starts to dabble in ideas that are unbiblical and wrong, if the parent overreacts and, and comes down hard and silences conversation and says, this is wrong and it's unbiblical and I don't want to hear any more about it in this household, that will cause the teenager to embrace the idea more firmly because of that kind of opposition. But if you are reasonable and calm and say, okay, you're interested in these ideas, let's, uh, let's disentangle this hairball a little bit. Let's, uh, let's define terms. Let's understand what it is that's drawing you to this. The result of that kind of patient interaction with alternative ideas is to make the person you're talking to a little bit more self-reflective and willing to challenge the, the, the views that they've accepted. So be patient, ask questions, define terms, uh, disentangle this hairball of ideas. And that can be especially helpful with theory because it's this, it is a theory. It's this intellectually complicated thing that even the proponents of theory often don't understand it well. So when you engage a little bit, it helps them to realize some of the shortcomings. And finally, I don't want to overstate this, but speak knowledgeably where possible. Uh, there's, there's more to life than reading up on the latest developments in wokery. Um, but where, possibly, where possible, uh, if you could read a book or two to be able to engage more thoughtfully, again, it, it, some of the ideas can be a little complex. It could be helpful when you can speak the language and help people show them that you know the perspective they're coming from. And hopefully the messages we've communicated over the past few weeks is a good first step in that direction. Number seven, this is really significant for many of us in this room. Distinguish between woke and non-woke. Distinguish between woke and non-woke. There are some dangerous, overzealous, but poorly informed Christians who see woke everywhere. So if you say, like, racism is evil, woke. No, Bible, right? God's against racism. And so they're not able to distinguish clearly between uh, allies who are emphasizing certain truths and CRT. Everything is woke. Everything is CRT. Uh, these kinds of individuals are like that uh, new hunter that shoots at anything that stirs in the bushes, right? Anything that stirs, they fire, both barrels, right? And sometimes you kill allies that way. The danger is that these kinds of individuals will be very divisive and disruptive in the life of the local church. By seeing wokeness where it doesn't exist and condemning it and fomenting a kind of resistance to wokeness where it doesn't in fact exist can be very harmful. So make sure that you are making distinctions and understand enough to be able to say that's really theory and, and that isn't. A lot of damage comes when we have overzealous individuals who don't understand what's going on and are just prepared to attack uh, without, again, understanding. Be watchful of that. Distinguish between woke and non-woke. Eight, help your kids navigate this minefield. Help your kids navigate this minefield. Uh, CRT has made huge inroads in uh, the, the academic world. Uh, it's hijacked many teacher uh, training colleges and institutions, and it's present in academia, it's present to a degree, it seems, in public schools. Uh, and so you should know what your kids are learning. Whatever form of education you've decided is best for your kid, 
you need to be aware of what they're being taught and who's teaching them and help them spit out the bones. Again, I don't want to say for a moment that uh, public school teachers to a person are advocating this stuff. There are many good, wonderful public school teachers that oppose theory, uh, but it is there and we should be wary of it. We should know what our children are learning. And I would add, be especially watchful of the pop culture that your kids are consuming. Theory isn't just there in, in the classroom, it's also coming at them through movies, it's coming at them through music. I think, for instance, of Zootopia. Now, it's been a while since I've seen Zootopia, or at least parts of Zootopia. I don't like it enough to go back and check, but I'm pretty sure I'm right in terms of my uh, engagement with it. What you see in Zootopia is this idea that uh, there aren't boundaries between animals. W one animal that identifies as, as being more powerful than it, it in fact is, um, that's the truth about that animal. Your self-identification defines you, not what you know, external realities. So there's some wokeism there, I believe. I don't think I'm in error. Uh, but understand that these ideas come not just through the screen, but also the earbuds. Like some parents are pretty good at like knowing what their kids watch, but less good at knowing what their kids listen to. What are your kids listening to? What messages are being sent through the songs that they consistently imbibe? Most obvious example, uh, Lady Gaga, born this way. We, not that I listen to Lady Gaga, but it's there. <laughs> it's part of the air we breathe. And uh, the idea is that because I was born this way, alternative sexualities are legitimate. So they're getting this unbiblical, radically unbiblical worldview through the music they're listening to. Be wary on all fronts, education, movies, music, pop culture. Doug Wilson exhorted his church in the following way. Doug Wilson's a pastor, Moscow, Idaho, and uh, I think he captured it well when he said, I wanted to exhort you as Christ church, as Christ church parents to be about 10 times more attentive. It is much better to have a fence at the top of the cliff than to have an ambulance parked at the bottom. The brave new world your children will inherit is not the same place your parents grew up in or even the place you grew up in. The world has many more digital traps set to ensnare their souls than it used to. And now is not the time for children to be allowed to run feral in such a world. Do not only give parental oversight to the basics like food, clothing, and a good formal education. Also pay attention to the digital dirt, to the catechesis being offered by the world all the time, 24-7. Please pay much closer attention. I can't do much better than that. Please pay much closer attention if you're parents. Know what they're listening to, watching, and learning in school. Be engaged. And it's also important to not just help them reject what is false. We want to help our children develop a biblical vision of life, a biblical worldview. We want to help them understand how the Bible views all of reality in a comprehensive way. So read some books on Christian doctrine with them. Uh, let me recommend one in particular, The Ology, Theology, The Ology by Marty Mikowski. It's aimed at younger children. Honestly, I'd use it with adults. The major doctrines of Scripture are discussed with such clarity uh, and, and uh, in such a winsome way that I think it would be a helpful book with people at all ages. Read something like that with your kids. Talk through creation and sin and Christ and the return of Christ. Help them develop a biblical comprehensive vision for life. That's your responsibility. If you, if you don't do it, it won't get done. Lastly, number nine, ninthly, wasn't so bad, ninthly, uh, be happy and love others. 
be happy and love others. Uh, the world is full of miserable people who are wringing their hands about what's coming next. Our society is collapsing. This is unprecedented misery. And it's bad. Uh, but if we're, but, but it, so it is bad, and there is a lot of misery about what's coming next, but that means that it provides also an unprecedented opportunity to impact people when you're joyful. Happy people in this current climate are winsome. Joyful people are going to make an impact on others. It's going to be infectious. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We're not rejoicing because we're naive about the state of the world. We're rejoicing because Jesus is king and he has triumphed and we are his people and so will we. And when there's that kind of gospel joy in your life, you're going to influence people, especially in this climate. I was reading an article in First Things recently that characterized the woke and he said, the, the individual said that um, they take themselves very seriously. They view themselves as intellectuals who are committed to serious ideas, serious people committed to serious ideas. Well, that kind of environment, knowing how to laugh, knowing how to enjoy life can be very, very powerful as you communicate the truth about Jesus. So don't ignore the pervasive, pervasive rather, emphasis of Scripture on being glad, on rejoicing in God. It's everywhere, and it matters big time. It matters more than knowing the ins and outs of theory. Are you glad in God? That's going to communicate big time with your kids. They're going to be attracted or not attracted based on your, on your general posture towards life. Are you a fundamentally joyful person or a grim, gospel-less person? Rejoice. And finally, love others. Theory is obsessed with power, who has it, how it operates. Uh, but ironically, there's, not, there's very little about love, which is the most powerful force in the world. Love has the power to turn enemies into friends. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God conquered us. We were once rebels and enemies, but his love for us in Jesus has transformed us. We are no longer enemies. We are friends of God. We have been loved, and so we love him in return. Don't underestimate, as the song says, the power of love. Don't underestimate the power of praying for those who oppose you, of being kind to those who are not kind to you, of blessing and not cursing. Don't under underestimate the power of doing good to those who hate you. When we love our enemies, that's one of the most powerful instruments that God uses to bring them to himself, to give them his truth and his light. And so we can end in no better way than to be reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to reflect your beautiful character to the world. Let us, through the help of your spirit and your word, engage both winsomely and wisely. Please use us to help those who have embraced error to come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that our lives in this world would be marked by a profound joy that comes from Christ and a deep faith in the gospel. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be cheerful advocates for the truth. Amen.